working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Today my guest is Dusty Simmons, who lives in Richmond, Virginia, tours and records with the Chris Jacobs Band, and is part of a number of Richmond-based original and tribute projects. He is a self-taught musician, having learned most of what he knows through watching, listening, and doing. And what he knows is impressive, ranging from the catalog of James Brown grooves to how to dial in monitor mixes for a death metal band. He also hosts a show on Instagram Live called Diggin' with Dusty, on which he DJs deep cuts from a wide array of genres. A quick programming note, this will be our last episode of 2018. We are taking a holiday break for the next few weeks, and we'll be back with our 200th episode on January 10th, 2019. And speaking of our 200th episode, we'll be celebrating this milestone with a live event on Thursday, January 10th at the Drum Pad at Drum Paradise in Nashville. We've selected a few of our favorite guests from the last four years to have a roundtable discussion. They are Harry Myrie, Hubert Payne, Seth Rapp, and Travis McNabb, and we'll also be doing a long-form interview with another special guest. We'll be doing some giveaways furnished by Aquarian, Innovative Percussion, and Drum Tacks, and we'll be live-streaming everything for those of you not in the Nashville area. For those of you in the Nashville area, we'd love to see you at this event, so go to drumpadnashville.com to register. Admission is free, but space is limited. You know what time it is now. Time to check in with RJ. Hey, Matt. How are you? Good, good. I'm in beautiful Pauling, New York today. Well, we're still on tour. <laughs> Since we last talked, the tour has continued. <laughs> we're about halfway We're halfway through now. We have um, I think 10 or 11 shows to go. But um, we're playing that venue called Daryl's House tonight. Oh, yeah. Owned by Daryl Hall right. from Hall & Oates. Yeah. And uh, I guess this is where he films his, that television show now. Um, I guess it started like in a studio, like on a barn on his property. Mm-hmm. Like uh, yeah, a studio inside of a uh, existing barn, I guess, from what I understand. But I guess the show got too big from a production standpoint for that, for that space. And he bought a property here. I guess he lives somewhere near here. And uh, so... You know, they, they filmed the show here, but then also, you know, they have just regular shows and we're one of the regular shows. <laughs> nice. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, man. How many shows per week are you guys playing? Is it pretty, pretty consistent? Six, show, six shows a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Six shows. So we, we've done 12 shows like in the, in the first two weeks of the tour. Played a show in Milwaukee at uh, the infamous Shank Hall, which was actually named such after the Spinal Tap movie. <laughs> you know, like there's the scene in Spinal Tap where they, they play Shank Hall in Milwaukee, you know. Yeah. That's where he's like, hey, smell the glove is here. Oh, <laughs> that's new record, cool. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but in, in the movie, it's like a theater kind right. of space. The, the Shank Hall is a, just a small club gotcha. in Milwaukee that has like a, it has a little miniature Stonehenge, like on the on, on the stage behind the, on the wall behind the That's stage. They have a couple man. other like little. Where'd little you come from? From the bloody airport. In there. 
<laughs> exactly. Where do you think I come from, um, darling? That's great. How, man, there's it's history. Hello, Janine. Smell the glove is here. Smell the glove. Everyone gather. What is it? It's like death. But it's um. Black. <laughs> but uh, how much more black can it be? The, the answer, answer is none. None, none more black. <laughs> Um, awesome. But yeah, it's been a cool couple of weeks. You know, our record came out on Friday, the 30th of November, which we were actually playing in Chicago that night. And that's where our record label is based out of. So that was quite a party and a show for the record books. Um, all of our label people came out. It's uh, Victory Records, which is based out of Chicago. And uh, you see what else we've been. We, I've been in the city the last couple of days. Uh, I feel so hip calling it the city, the you know, city, sort of thing, yeah. New York city. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I met a woman at PASIC named Dina Toriello. I don't know if you've heard of her before. I haven't. She's been in a lot of rock bands over the years and she's currently drumming for the Broadway musical head over heels, which is like a jukebox mu- musical based on uh, the music of the go-go's. Okay. And the storyline of the musical doesn't really have anything to do with the Go-Go's, but I, you know, I met her at PASIC. She was involved in a panel discussion there. And, you know, I told her I was going to be in the city and on tour with my band. And she's like, Oh, Reservoir and Heat, I'm a huge fan. And, you know, and I was like, cool. And she's like, well, Hey, come, if you get a, if you have a free night, come sit in the pit and watch me play the show. Yeah. So that's what I did last night, actually, like, which nice. was a blast. And, Nice. You know, a real thrill. Like, and she's killing the book, and it's like a rock show, basically. So, mm-hmm. it's a fun book to play, and she's killing it. And sadly, I think that she told me actually that it's uh, it's closing in the beginning of January. Like, the musical didn't make it, but but okay. uh, she's been involved with it for a year or so. That's a whole different and, beast, um, man. That those things and yeah, just, the cues and. Be able to play with such consistency every night. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she and she killed it and it was fun. And, mm-hmm. yeah, well what's coming was, up, man, the next couple fun. weeks here? Well, um tour continues. Yeah. You know, we we're uh get we have one playing in Philly I think tomorrow and D C the next day and starting to make our way down to the southeast and um I think we go as far as Jacksonville, Florida, where we're playing a theater. The, the, the something is called the Florida Theater, actually, or maybe it's the Jacksonville Theater, but it's famous because Elvis played there. So it's been been around a long time, and um, you see the tour wraps up on the twenty second. Well, hopefully, we've got some <clears throat> listeners that that will maybe check out the website and see the tour, and um, yeah, maybe reach out through the podcast, um, and uh, we can we can relay anything and say, hey, we got somebody coming out, yeah, or to see you play, yeah, people. You know, feel free to hit me up on Instagram, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, Arjuna underscore A-R-J-U-N-A underscore. Um, and uh, yeah, the tour dates are at reverendhortonheat.com okay. slash tour, I think is easy enough uh, link to remember. If we don't talk uh, before the, the holidays, man, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. And- Thank you, man. We'll Same be talking day. to you soon. Sounds good. We'll save travels, man, we'll, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good, brother. Talk See you man. soon. Bye. Bye-bye. So I met Dusty 
in Pennsylvania when we were on a show together a few months ago, and after talking with him for about two minutes, I knew I wanted to have him on the podcast. Everything about his presence and his playing feels organic and centered and true to himself. He's a great hang, and he's got some great stories to tell about his life in music. He's also a really wonderful spokesman for his hometown of Richmond, which has really come into its own lately as a city for the arts. So please enjoy Dusty Simmons. I know that tired look inside your eyes. So you're in New Orleans right now, right? Yeah. And you were you were the fortunate recipient of Elton John tickets in New Orleans. Is that what brought you there? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't even have a ticket yet. My um, my brother and sister in law are here. They have tickets. Oh, um, gotcha. So I'm just gonna go down there and get one tonight. Cool. But you've played there a fair amount, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, generally jazz fest, right? It, and, and it's always crazy here. Um, it's great because you get to see all your friends and you get to catch up with everybody. Right, um, right. But it's 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 sort of it's insane. It's so much going on. So it's nice to be able to to be here, just sort of soak up the city a little without everything being crazy. Yeah, know? yeah. Catch and up with uh, a bunch of friends that live here, so just catching up with them as well. So. Right, right. I've been to New Orleans a few times. Um, I've never been during Jazz Fest, and I've never been during Mardi Gras, and, and I'm not sure I want to, man. It's, <laughs> it just sounds like bedlam. Mardi Gras, maybe. I haven't done Mardi Gras here, but um, Jazz Fest is a must, yeah. Right. I think, you, I think you know, for, for any musician, it's like... It's incredible. Yeah, it's, you, I can't even explain the feeling. It's it's sort of like it's like a sacred moment, you know. Two weeks of just um, love and music, and it's it's great. Yeah, know? yeah. I guess I I just kind of uh, put it on the same uh, you know the same place in my mind as any other huge festival of that size. Uh, which usually doesn't interest me, but I, I dig what you're saying. Like the fact that it's in New Orleans and the, the history of it, I think would make it feel different. And it's also there's kind of two jazz fests. So there's the fairgrounds, right, which I rarely go to, right. And then there's New Orleans Jazz Fest, where it's Frenchman Street and and all that. And there's like just back to back shows from One Eye Jacks and the Maison and. Howlin' Wolf and Maple Leaf, and you're just bouncing around there. That's normally where I, where I'm going to check out Blue Nile stuff like that. And you don't, you generally don't even leave to go out until nine thirty, ten, eleven o'clock at night, and you're not getting back until seven, eight, nine in the morning. It's a very wow. no, it's a very nocturnal experience for for anyone going to the fairgrounds and then continuing on. Uh, through the night with any sort of regular drinking going on is oh, it's got to be of heroic proportions to make it through human. that's just superhuman i can't imagine yeah i'm <laughs> i'm getting old man it's happening I just <laughs> likewise likewise um so uh so is it with uh chris jacobs that you've played uh, jazz fest there before that was this past Jazz Fest. Uh, we did our first with the Chris Jacobs Band. Um, before I was here with DJ Williams Project, um, which was our band out of Richmond. And then 
various connections through that. Last mm-hmm. time I was last jazz fest, we did a show with Ivan Neville at the Ace Hotel. We did this sort of Rolling Stones tribute. It was uh, Chris. Jonathan, our other Jonathan Sloan, the other guitar player in Chris Jacobs band, mm-hmm. myself, Ivan Neville and Tony Hall on bass. Cool. Man. So we did that. And then, um, we played a gig at the blue Nile with the Chris Jacobs band featuring Ivan Neville. And Ivan played pretty much the entire set with us, which yeah. was incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you and I met, uh, a few months ago, um, Chris Jacobs band and Ruby Bell on the Sulfonics did like a co-headlining thing at, um, mm-hmm. this, this little concert series they do in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania of all places, <laughs> Google that place and find out why it's called Jim Thorpe. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I was blown away by the Chris Jacobs band, man. You guys, you guys were just so damn good. Um, so, so tell people, uh, a little bit about, uh, what that band is, what, what flavor it is and, and how it came together. Okay. Uh, well, I guess when people ask what kind of music is it, uh, we would say like soul Americana, I, like I guess. That. Yeah. To, and it's tough. Genres are weird and genres is sort of, you know, there's a lot of separatism and, and isolation within those things. And people, if you say rock and roll, they have a, they've painted a picture of who you sound like. Right. And, and, and I think that's always tough is to convey what, you know, but you don't want to be like, I don't know what we sound like. Yeah. So Chris's voice is, is incredible. And, um, there's so many qualities about it that can go from a country thing to a, a deep, soulful thing he's got you know there's like gospel obviously there's blues i find blues is sort of a common thread in almost any music yeah um and but so everything is everything has a pocket it's got a grease and a groove to it even if it's essentially like a traditional-esque country tune or you know a soul tune or even like a rock tune there's a bounce there's a bounce to it that's sort of like that's the common thread Mm mm-hmm um, so I guess that's when we, we say like soul, there's that, that, that's like the, the ingredient within. Yeah. 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 And then, and then the Americana side is, is these great stories and songs that Chris writes. Right. Um, and he, he, he paints great pictures lyrically. Um, and, and, you know, they can make you think they can make you feel something. And, um, Chris is really great about, he's not one to over explain his lyrics. He's really into somebody just interpreting it for themselves. Yeah. Um, there, you know, he can articulate, obviously he's got what he, the reasons he wrote that song and what he takes from that song, but he rarely, you know, tends to explain that and leave it sort of open to the, uh, to the listener, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, he is just like the, the total package of singer, guitarist, songwriter, like, those three aspects of his game are all super, uh, <laughs> super together. Yeah. He, he triple threat. You yeah. Know? And, and, and what you don't see a lot, I mean, he's got some other groups and he's, he's done sit-ins with other bands, but he's an incredible flat picker. Wow. Like his bluegrass chops are, you know, up there. Wow. For sure. Like yeah, yeah. he, you know, he sat in, he sits in with Billy strings and, and obviously we were really close with the green sky bluegrass camp. Um, and, you know, he could pick up an acoustic guitar, jump into one of those settings, and you're like, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
So how how long have you been playing with them? How long has the Chris Jacobs band in in the form I saw uh, been doing its thing? The form that you saw with the four of us, um, two and a half, between two and a half and three years. Uh-huh. Um, I guess the, I'll answer the other half of your question is how it really started was Chris Jacobs from Baltimore had a band for many years called The Bridge. Mm-hmm. And then Todd Harrington, the bass player in that band, and myself were in the DJ Williams project. And those two bands used to tour together, like as kind of like a package. Mm -hmm. And we would set up all the gear on stage, both bands gear on stage. And depending on whoever's market it was, would play the second set or the first set. But it was, you know, that wasn't really, it didn't matter to anybody because let's say for instance, the DJ Williams project would play the first set on our last song one by one the members of the bridge would jump on stage and start playing our song with us wow and one and then one by one when when everyone was up there we would leave stage and they would sort of continue our song finish it and then start their set what a cool idea so it would go from one set to the other with no switch yeah and then and then they would finish their set and there'd be like a 15 20 minute 30 minute break (laughs) (laughs) whatever and then we would do a set with both bands playing together. And we had, you know, whatever, uh, a few tunes, you know, you can imagine how many solos were in each song. Right. With full band. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, we had like a handful of tunes and we would do this sort of encore set with both bands playing at the same time. So the friendship there uh, it goes all the way back to like Oh four Oh five era years later, 12 years later, whatever it was. Um, I had gotten a call, from Chris to, um, sub this everyone orchestra gig. I can't remember who I was subbing for. Um, and I was all set to do it. And then it turned out the drummer could do that gig. So I was like, no worries. Cool. Um, and then Chris was like, Hey, you know, like now that we've connected, we always talked like back in the day, like when those two bands were touring, we would always talk like, Oh man, it'd be great to be in a band together, blah, 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 blah. And you know, play together, that kind of thing. Um, and so then he sort of was like, what are you doing? And right at that time, DJ had moved to LA. Um, and so the, the project was sort of not, you know, it was kind of fizzling out. We'd already been doing it for like 13, 14 years. Wow. And he's obviously touring with Carlinson's tiny universe. And so they're busy with that. Yeah. And so there was like a freedom there and I was kind of looking for something else anyway. He's like, I got these two shows why don't we come and do it? And then, you know, we played those couple shows and then he was like, what's going on with Todd? And then I was like, you know, he's doing a couple things with let's talk and Todd was way down. And then there was like the three of us and, uh, and we toured and, and did the first, the record, the dust of gold record with the three of us. And then, um, Chris's buddy and now our friend, John Ginty was playing keys, but he sort of did like the overdub scene. Mm -hmm. Um, right at the end of that record, Chris brought on Jonathan Sloan, who's from the DC area on guitar. And then here's, you know, the four of us now. Right. So you, you and Todd, the bassist are in Richmond. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Chris is in Baltimore and, and Mm -hmm. your guitarist, sorry, what was his name? Jonathan Sloan. Jonathan Sloan in DC. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you guys do that? (laughs) We, uh, we show up at Chris's house and get in the van and drive to the gig. <laughs> was, but in the beginning, I mean, rehearsing, getting all that together, were you just making those drives because everybody was into it? 
No, there was no, <laughs> there, there wasn't much rehearsing, honestly. Wow. Okay. There was a couple, um, with the three, with, with Todd and Chris and myself, um, that was before, I think like our first trio gig was opening up for Sturgill Simpson in Charlottesville. And we were like, we had done the record. Cause that was the thing. We played a few shows and then Chris had, you know, these tunes and he was like, let's go record the record. Yeah. Like he, he Chris had, you know, secured a deal. Um, someone was going to put out the record. They had the studio as well. So it was all sort of like an in-house operation, that particular record. Um, so we went, we made that and then it was like, okay, let's go play some shows. Um, we ended up doing, um, a tour with green sky bluegrass from sort of the Midwest and all the way to all the way out West. That was as a trio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as we got back from that, it, you know, was almost instantaneous that Jonathan and actually Jonathan was in the picture when we went to go do that tour very early on, but the, the budget was just like impossible to make that work. Right. Right. So we had to do it as a trio. It was kind of a last minute thing as well. Um, it, but then since that it's, it's always been the four of us. Cool. Cool. And how many records have you done with, with Chris? We just finished our second record. Cool. Okay. And what's the name of that record? Uh, there isn't an official title, but uh, tentatively titled "Color Where You Are." Okay, so it's it's not out yet. No, it'll come out uh, next spring, probably early April-ish. Cool, cool. And I'd imagine you'll be traveling your ass off on the back of that, right? Mm, yeah, it's, that's the plan. Yeah, we yeah. start. Uh, we're doing an, another run with Green Sky at the end of January, starting in Florida and like coming up through the Carolinas. Cool, cool. Um, so that uh, safe to say that Chris is is your your kind of main gig right now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but you've got a couple other projects going on in Richmond. Yeah, we have. I have like a few tribute bands that I do there. Cool. Um, one is with my brother Jeremy, who's a bass player called Skydog, and that's an Almond Brothers tribute band. Oh, nice! And it's you know it's definitely like like deep cats, you know, like everyone's studied this material and it's not like our version of it. You, the people are dissecting the, the film or records and it's, it's very legit. Right. Who's the other um, drummer? Uh, Keith Cable, who's another Richmond drummer. And, um, funny enough, he, I have, uh, I play in a talking heads tribute band called fear of music and <laughs> Keith, Keith is the percussionist in that band. Oh, wow. Cool. And then the third one, uh, Todd plays bass in, um, me and him have a, uh, a James Brown tribute band called the big payback. Oh, I love it. That's so, so those are the three. And then I do, um, my brother has another group called the gold sauce, which is sort of like a trio that plays like sixties and seventies soul and rhythm and blues music, mm-hmm. um, that I get to do sort of whenever I'm, whenever I'm off. Right. Right. Yeah. And so with, with what frequency do those three tribute bands you mentioned, play like is is there enough of a demand around richmond that that they're all pretty regular uh they they definitely could be um they and and i'd say that they were more you know a a few years back like the sky dog thing's been around for 10 years Mm -hmm. fear of music has been around for almost seven six or something like that the big payback for you know i think our first show was 2006. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the, the thing about 
both of those bands as I have a sub who can, so the big payback has two drummers, just like the love power piece album. It, right. The band was sort of derived from that record. Like that was sort of the starting point, the foundation. And of course, everybody in all these bands, like the payback rehearsed for a year before we ever played live. Really? Yeah. So wow. it was a very, you know, and that, and that's a, you know, that's a practice and discipline. Like the rules are right there. It's just sort of like, <laughs> The drummers only like me and myself and Joel Denunzios and the other drummer. We only play a kick, a snare, a hi hat, and a ride cymbal. Yeah, because that's that's all it. The gig. Yeah, that's all you need. Right. Um, so I have a, a sub for myself, or obviously the gig can be done with one drummer, which happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're able to to work even if I can't join them. Right. The only the only band that 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 doesn't happen in is Fear of Music. Mm-hmm. And we've actually, we're only playing three shows this year and they were all like, we did like a gig in October. We do this gig every, uh, the night before Thanksgiving. And then we do the show, the Christmas Eve Eve. So, okay. Yeah. That band will just be three shows, but you know, we get offers all the time and just people are busy there. Everybody in that band works and has multiple other things going on. Right. Families, you know? Um, so it's it's a blast, and it would be great to just be able to cherry pick and you know play a lot more. But it, right, you know, right. I think it's it's waves, you know, of, of you know how it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know the, the the tribute band thing has has taken off everywhere, <laughs> basically, um, mm-hmm. and we've we've talked about it quite a bit. Is um, has it has in in your experience has it been at the expense of uh, original music and original artists in Richmond? Um, or just in addition to? Well, I don't know. That's interesting. I, for me, I was sort of, I never took lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I took one lesson in my entire life from Joe Morello, and it was <laughs> myself and him at a practice pad, and it was really because I wanted to learn that single-stroke role. That was the only lesson I've, I've ever taken. Yeah. And the rest of it was just sort of listening to records and trying to emulate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and th- through all those bands, I found a lot of connection and, and obviously many others to where I would just be sitting with the records and doing it. So for me, it was sort of like a labor and a practice of wanting to emulate these people, build my chops up and just sort of have that vocabulary mm-hmm. of that type of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the the want to do a tribute thing was really just sort of like to pay homage and and to just be get to play that music right um right. you know obviously there was like the you know this will probably make a couple of bucks but it wasn't really like a marketing thing yeah it was re- it was really because all of those bands all three of those bands um spent close to a year rehearsing before ever playing so right. you know we wanted to come out you know killing yeah yeah and and so just doing that alone you you knew that the that the love and the appreciation for the music was there because Mm -hmm. it wasn't like when are we gonna play our gig when you know it was like we knew that we weren't it was gonna be really really tight right right so and so go ahead i think i i would hope that if anything it, it you know just build someone's vocabulary and their talent and their chops and just sort of you know, there's a lot of um, discipline that comes to playing any specific band, much yeah. less a, a genre. Yeah. You know, and having having the ability to play multiple genres is great, and that's the idea. And, and of course, you know, it's like different flavors of ice cream. You don't want to eat vanilla every night, right? But you 
you know, you need to know how to play your role and stay there and not just because you can play something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And just sort of, I try to find myself in the spirit of that music and then that way I can really connect with it and do it proper justice. Tell us about uh, just the, the the Richmond scene and the 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 past and present of it. And I mean, you're born and raised there, right? Mm-hmm. So, how did kind of the musical uh, culture in Richmond uh, shape you? Well, I guess first off, I moved from Richmond when I was 11 to St. Louis, and then I moved back when I was 17, okay. about to turn 18. So I was gone for around like basically like the high school period, right? Um, the but it definitely, time. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, and important, but it, it definitely started in, in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, the Richmond music scene, it, it, I, I didn't know anything about it, it, you know, when I was a kid at all, right. uh, except for the fact that my dad plays, you know, in a band, he still plays music, but, um, he was working three jobs. One of those jobs was playing in a band. They had converted the garage into the rehearsal space and sort of soundproofed it. So band practice was all there. All the gear was, you know, set up and stayed there. Yeah. My, my brother, Jeremy was playing music. So the only music that I was sort of other than listening to records was going out and seeing my, my father play or my brother play right. when his band would jam like after school in the garage. So your dad play guitar? Uh, uh Yes, but at, you, when I was when I was a kid, he he had these duo gigs where he'd play acoustic guitar and sing. He's got an incredible voice, mm-hmm. and then he also played in like a fifties and sixties rock band, and he played bass and sang in that. Oh, cool! But what was a really cool thing is my dad, obviously, like I said, was very busy at multiple jobs, so he would have a tape, a cassette tape of all these tunes that he had to learn for practice, but he didn't have time to learn it. So he would give the tape to my brother, Jeremy, my brother, Jeremy would transcribe all these tunes. And my dad would get home from work and my brother would be like, okay, this is how the song goes. Wow. (laughs) Right. And so so I'm seeing all that, 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 that's my first sort of introduction into music. Now, uh, I took to the drums very young. I was like six or seven and this drum set was set up in the garage and it was sort of, you know, my dad was like, don't fucking touch anything <laughs> except for what's yours, like your bicycle. And we, we had this big wooden box with all of our sports stuff, like baseball gloves and whatever. And yeah. So it was like, don't touch anything else, you know? Right. And me and my brother, Zach, were latchkey kids. So we'd get home from elementary school, you know, about 45 to an hour and some change before my folks would get home. And uh, I would come home from school and like I had like this alarm clock in there like one of those old school ones and I would get behind the drums and I had at this point um my brother had given me you know introduced me to Led Zeppelin and I was like checking all that out and I had this Zeppelin tape headphones on and I would just you know blast away until the alarm go off and I was out of there dad was walking (laughs) in the door I'm I'm playing Nintendo oh nobody's the wiser well (laughs) six months into that um, I'm playing and I, you know, my dad comes home early and his story is that he comes home and, you know, he hears drums in the garage and my brother Zach sitting at the kitchen table and he's like, Zach, he's like, who's, who's in the drums playing garage? He's like, nobody's playing drums, <laughs> you know? 
And so, so he comes in and he sees me sitting behind the kid. I don't see him. I'm like, damn, my eyes are closed. And right, I'm like right. rocking. And I, by this time I got, you know, a couple things put together. I yeah. sort of took to drums pretty naturally. And, um, and I look up and I see him and I'm like, Oh, and I drop the sticks and you know, the headphones. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was like, he, he just looked at me. He was like, pick up the sticks and I'll call you when dinner's ready. And so that was like the beginning of the few, you know, and my parents and my entire family have been my biggest supporters and fans my Man, whole life. That's so cool. It, that's so cool. Yeah. So like in, in that moment, like he, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have seen him computing in that moment. Like a, my son has been touching all this shit. I told him not to touch and he's been playing drums and B like he can, he can really play C I'm going to let him continue <laughs> like just in a, in a moment. Yeah, I guess you know, it, it, it was, um, it was great. And, and it was just really for all the drum, you know, vintage heads out there is the kit was a 1964 sonar when they were made in Western Germany and has the teardrop lug and it's the blue satin flame. Um, and I still have that kit. Oh, that's so it's, cool. It, it, it lives at my brother's studio in Richmond. And, uh, yeah. And so for my eighth birthday, I remember I was, I had a football game with my brother and, um, I wanted, the only thing I wanted was the Mike McGill skateboard uh-huh. from, from the back of Thrasher magazine. And I had the great, this badass like dragon or something. I can't remember, but like, that's what I wanted. And I came home and I go up to my bedroom and there's this big sheet, like a bed sheet, like blocking off the corner of my room. And I'm like, what's up with the sheet? And he's like, your birthday present's back there. And I was like, I just looked at him. I was like, there better be a skateboard behind that sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I take the sheet down and the drum set is in my bedroom. And oh, I'm like, man. I'm like, what's up with this? And he's like, it's yours now. I bought it. And so he, I think he ended up paying like a hundred bucks for it or whatever. And it's yeah. worth like a crazy amount of money. But, um, and I looked at him and I was like, so no skateboard. And you know, I, ended up, I, I, I ended up getting that from my grandma or whatever. But, uh, and, and, you know, and of course a week later he was like, so, uh, these are still yours, but they got to go back in the garage for rehearsal, you know? Uh, so they ended right. up living back in the room, which was great, you know? Right. Right. What a yeah. cool So it, as far as the Richmond scene, when I got back, so I came back 97 or no, not, I'm sorry, 98, August of 98. And there wasn't much happening except for, um, our good friend, Nate Griffith, who's, uh, an incredible musician, a super killing jazz guitar player and just sort of musical genius and really kind of an artistic genius in, in, in every right. Like he shoots, um, documentaries, makes video stuff, right. you know, shoots and he's just incredible. I don't want to say guys, he's, man. It's... Yeah. Yeah. He's really, <laughs> he's just like crazy good at everything. Yeah. Um, he had this jazz gig at this local bar called the commercial tap house and he would have all the heavyweights playing with him. And it was just this really loose hang. And it was a place I could go and like drink underage. And like, it was just all these great jazz musicians. And lucky enough, because we were friends with Nate, he was my older brother, Jeremy's uh, high school friend. They had their first band together. So we sort of already had this connection with him and he introduced us to all these heavy jazz guys. And like I said, there wasn't really many bands doing you know, at least quality bands that I could see because we were trying to go out and see music and like that was the thing. Well, right then it seemed like all these bands were starting and like quality bands and like every genre from heavy metal to jazz to to pop and hip hop and um, there's there's deep roots there everywhere from especially these days like 
fusion jazz guys like uh, Butcher Brown. And then there's like no BS brass band and mm-hmm. um, Angelica Garcia is a great artist who uh, is, is it does this indie pop, but it's, it's, it's different. I, it's hard for me to categorize. I, I wish I had like a list of all of them that I could, that I could, uh, the stuff like, but you know, Natalie Prass is from there. Then you have the space bomb camp, which is like Matthew E. White and Bedouin. And, um, uh, they've, they've worked with like Foxygen and, and all these different connections. There's all yeah. these cool and, and like heavy metal. You have like Gwars from Richmond and Lamb is it really? God and, and yeah. And <laughs> municipal waste and, wow. um, uh, like Dave Witty, who plays a municipal waste, is sort of like the inventor of the blast beat. You know, wow. Um, it, it, it's deep. There's and like you, you could go deep into the jazz world and um, so many. Uh, it's it, it's such a broad topic, but what I can tell you is that it's it's better than ever right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's always music going on. There's always, it, but not even that. It's like the caliber of what's going on. Like everybody's putting out quality stuff. One of my favorite bands from Richmond is called Sleepwalkers. Mm-hmm. There's this incredible sort of pop rock band. Um, uh, DJ Harrison, who's, you know, becoming uh, a hero amongst the sort of underground hip hop beat makers, producers uh, world. Um, he's also the founding member of Butcher Brown. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Corey Fondo's a drummer in Butcher Brown. He's playing with um, like Christian Scott. He just did this huge drummer Zildjian thing down in New York with like Kareem Riggins and Deitch and, right. and all yeah. those cats. And so it's just great. You see all these, you know, younger cats and, you know, they're doing just, they're just killing it, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and, and everybody loves their city. So even when they're out and, and making a name for themselves everywhere, they're always repping Richmond. Right. Because there is this, there's this culture here um, that is just so supportive. Where all the musicians want to, they'll play with each other to just to help their product even right. you know, blossom out there. For instance, like Todd's got his group called the Mekong Express, which is right. A band I was that just was, checking that out on Instagram, and it's killer. And and that band is sort of a powerhouse of a bunch of players who play in other things. Is that like an original funk band? Yeah, man, mm-hmm. that's cool. And, and you know the the horn section, um, a bunch of those guys play or have played in Biorhythmo, which is this Grammy nominated salsa band from Richmond. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, okay, so so twenty like twenty years ago when you came back to Richmond uh, mm-hmm. from St. Louis, it it seemed to you that there wasn't a whole lot going on, um, and now you're part of this scene that uh between you know it's it's just all this homegrown talent studios venues groups um mm-hmm. to to what do you attribute that uh explosion um i'd say a little bit of there's a, a great um college an arts college in the middle of of richmond called vcu virginia mm-hmm. commonwealth university and they have an incredible i think one of the top in uh, arts departments, especially like sculpture and things like that uh, mm-hmm. in the country. And they also have an incredible jazz department that was sort of built from the ground up by um, this gentleman, Doug Richards. Uh-huh. And, and he um, was, a, you know, director of the jazz department. And, uh, you know, you had incredible talents um, coming out of there like uh, James Genus and 
Clarence Penn and Joey wow. Barron. Joey Barron's from Oregon Hill, which is um, a part of like the sort of Richmond fan area. Um, and so the VCU area just started like right when like a lot of these cats that I play with now were in the middle of their getting their degree at VCU. Huh. Yeah. And so, and so a lot of people went there and these bands just sort of grew because people were putting bands together while they were in school, obviously right, doing right. things like that. And just, you know, it, it's sort of like, that's what you do is like play with as many people as you can. And yeah. that's what was going on. And at the time, whew, it was just, you know, everybody was killing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, so interesting what, yeah. what you're saying, everything you're saying about Richmond um, reminds me of Kansas city where I lived for seven years and I didn't make the connection until now, but you talked about uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, this art school in the middle of town. Um, and Kansas City has uh, the, the Kansas City Art Institute, which is a longstanding, you know, highly respected uh, uh, art school. Um, there was the jazz program at UMKC, which I was a part of that I've, I've talked about before. But I never made that connection between like, the uh, you know, a music scene in a city and having an art school in the city, not just a music school, but like if, yeah. if, if that art school is producing um, or, you know, promoting a culture of, of just artistic, you know, experimentation and openness and progressiveness uh, that, that does a lot for the music scene. Yeah. And, and, and really like there's a culinary scene, there's a fashion scene, yeah. there's a, we have the, we have the, what's called the French film festival. Um, it, it's, it's it embodies all of the art. There's the there's galleries everywhere. We do this thing called First Fridays, where all the galleries open up and there's little performances. Kansas and, City and has the exact same thing, like in the Crossroads right. District in Kansas City. Yeah, it's, that's amazing. It's so it seems when I when I came back in '98, it, it seemed like it took a little while, but like the artists themselves were going to, and, and I, I, so the other, you know, you said, where does this come from? And other than VCU, it, it was the community itself. It yeah. was the, it was the musicians and the artists and the sculptors and paint, you know, and this, everybody. And it was like, okay, well, if the city isn't going to show us any love or give us any funding for, you know, these kinds of events or whatever, we're going to do them ourselves. So a lot of it became grassroots and it was just getting people to come out to shows. And, you know, obviously this was all at the very beginning of social media, you know, right. before all this was happening. So there was still back in the days where you're making flyers and posting them up and giving out handbills and you had to go to the show and you had, you know what I'm saying? You had to build it. Yeah. And, and so I would say, you know, it was, it was built by the community. And then after a while, it was almost sort of like submission. Like the city was, well, this is, <laughs> this is who we are now. So we, got, we, we better get on board. And it, it's been, you know, incredibly valuable to them as a city because yeah. now we get, you know, we're in all these magazines is some great place to live. And, and it, it's a beautiful place and, and I love it. And I, you know, I, I can't, argue with that. And that's not to say that I want it to be the next Asheville or Austin where people are like, we have to go right. to, you know, Richmond because, you know, I can live pretty cheap right now. And I kind of like it to stay that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, though that's, you know, rapidly changing. Um, it's also like the brewery tour, you know, or, you know, craft brewery tour capital of the country right now. Or Is it really? I, yeah. And I, <laughs> you, it's whatever those, you know, it's magazines and people call things, you know, I don't really, I don't know if it's I, apparently if they do by numbers per capita. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, but, 
But it could also yeah. just be one dude's opinion who has a blog. And <laughs> no, uh, no, no. I mean, it's pretty like legitimate publications oh, okay. are okay. saying this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, like outdoor living, like I think last year or something like that, they put their like Richmond, Virginia is the best place to live. You're into the outdoors kind huh. of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that that's true because I've been to some beautiful places that I feel like. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in New Mexico, so I'm like, eh. <laughs> I yeah, know, man. but uh, it, it's it's it is. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, I can't say enough nice things about it. Uh, the, but, and, and especially now the city's entirely embraced the idea of the arts being the culture that makes up that city, right? you know, right. and the city and the city and its, pa- and its patrons and musicians and everybody really supports each other. You know, it's beautiful. When I make the run, I got the shovel and you got the sun gun. Long as we can find ourselves just a hiding home. What is digging with Dusty? <laughs> um, it is a uh, part. It's part of what's called the Sugar Network, and the Sugar Network is um, this guy Steve Mandel, who is a long, uh, like the longtime engineer for the Roots Crew, um, and he also is their, you know, in studio engineer at the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And right when uh, Instagram live sort of happened, he was, you know, cause I followed him, I followed Questlove and just a bunch of those guys because they were always pulling up cool content as far as like behind the scenes stuff. And yeah. I just kind of nerd out to that kind of stuff. <clears throat> anyway, it was like right when they were going on live and it started with Steve Mandel got this nickname, um, from the Questlove Supreme podcast. He's one of the one of the co-hosts on on that, and mm-hmm. so they call him Sugar Steve. So on that, he had started the Sugar Steve account, and it started with a series of interviews, and then it ended up becoming this collective of you know people who were like deep music heads and just shared an appreciation for music, and then everybody started branching out and having their sort of own shows, you know, on Instagram and Live, on Instagram Live, yeah. and so my show was sort of. Me and me and Sugar would always talk in like we both I guess know a fair amount about music and different histories and genres, so we could go deep. And then it turned out that we had a lot of mutual friends and yada yada yada. And he was like, "You got to have your own show." And so mine was I was just going to spin vinyl and like maybe deeper cuts or you know deeper artists or pick a certain artist and get deep into their catalog and, you know, if, you know, talk about weird factoids or maybe just hit people to music and play music. And if someone has a question, they type it and I respond. And it was just this very community based thing. So digging with dusty was, is the sort of outlet. If you see that going live, then you're probably going to, you can definitely be hearing music. Right. But I sort of figured out a way so Instagram, when you're using it live or whatever you're hearing is a mono signal. Mm-hmm. So I got a, uh, I got a stereo summing cable that goes from a stereo to a mono feed. Huh. And then I, and then I just plug that right into, um, the iRig. And so that automatically, you know, turns and, you know, it becomes your input source into Instagram live. So I can give you stereo quality feed. Like you could plug your phone up to the stereo and it would sound like I was in your house playing a record. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. So it's, it's just basically that it's, you know, it's, it's a fun, a really fun musical 
collective community and, you know, I've, I've met a lot of great people and have a lot of cool relationships and, and learned a lot about other music that I wasn't aware of. Right. Right. And so is, is the stuff you play on there? Like, do you, do you kind of hew to a particular genre or bag or is it just across the board, whatever you're feeling Um, that day? It's a kind of across the board, but I would say the common thread in there is most of the stuff I'm playing is pretty funky. Yeah. Like even if I'm going to play you, you know, a country record, it's like, Oh yeah, this is the funkiest record. It'll be like the, the Jerry Reed, a little bit of singing, a little bit of picking. Right. Um, so there's usually a swag to, to, to anything that I'm playing, but you know, it it could be, you know, I, the thing about it is, is there as Instagram live has been, you know, upgrading itself and whatever, they've also sort of put uh, a Shazam type feature into the, you know, the algorithm of Instagram live. So if you play something that's super highly copywritten and protected, they're going to shut down your live video. Ah, so I'm not putting on like the Beatles white album or whatever. Um, (laughs) hence, and, and so, um, hence why you have to go like a little bit deeper, but I can also put on like, a you know, um, like a Gary McFarland record or, you know, some deeper jazz record and it'll be fine and it won't get flagged. Right, and it's right. funny is that any jazz record that you do play, if you get popped, it's generally because it was sampled on a hip hop tune. <laughs> like, like you're, you're not going to play, um, you know, Bob James one. If you started on track one side, a you're done. Right. You know, it's like, right, right. cause of those samples and like the, the hip hop stuff is way more protected than almost any other genre of music. Yeah. And, and, and it's all been ripped off, you know, it's right. like, I'm, I'm getting popped generally from the sample, not because of that's funny, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this uh this kind of led me to to want to go back to what you were talking about i mean you you mentioned you've you've been listening to records your whole life you've been like diving into artists and genres and and whatever your whole life um mm-hmm. and that you know kind of naturally progressed into your digging with dusty thing um but in in your self taught journey um did you did you ever consider going to college? Did you ever consider taking on, you know, a teacher in Richmond? Um, and what, like, how did, how did you construct your own, uh, drumming and music education? Um, well, I went as, uh, you know, from the beginning, I guess I went to the university of John Bonham (laughs) and that's really, that sparked everything. Yeah. Um, but honestly, because of the way I learned via records and wanting to emulate people, um, just about every drummer that I see becomes a teacher mm-hmm. in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I try to be, because I've never, you know, I was, I'm not, I'm not used to the, the one-on-one thing now that, you know, I've, I've definitely sat with other drummers and you know, it's like, Oh, what's that? That's cool. Blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of a thing. Right. But it was never like a formal lesson where I sat down and was like, you know, here you go. And, you know, I, I never really got super deep into like practicing paradiddles. Right. You know, there was things that I would play and somebody would be like, Oh, that's, that's the song. Or, you know, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. But you know, 
Um, which I, which I'd, I'd say more now, like the, in, in the past year or so I've been like sort of nerding out to figuring out what some of that stuff is called or what it really is. Right. Um, but I would always just sort of try to absorb, uh, another drummer and like how they were fitting not only with the rhythm section, but how they were serving the song. Right. Now, granted there was a lot of things that you would see and go, that was really great. That's a good thing to do. And there's a whole lot of, Ooh, I'm not doing that. Right. Like, <laughs> like, you know, you learn a lot of lessons watching somebody not serve the song as best as it could be. That's totally. the nicest way that I could say it. I'm not yeah. going to say, you know, I'm not, I never try to be negative with anything that I, yeah. that I hear or ingest. So, but, and I, I find that I, that I reflect that back on myself sometimes. Like if I'm, if I'm watching a drummer and they do something that I don't dig, uh, my first thought is like, Oh, he shouldn't have done that. And immediately thereafter, I'm like, I've done that exact thing. You see how not good it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so I, 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 I just, I feel that there's something to be learned everywhere um and then of course being in some of those um tribute things where there's two drummers you learn how to do to do that because yeah. you know that's it's that's got to be a conversation right. um and then and then of course you know it it really comes down to when you're playing whatever the type of gig or whatever who you're with whether or not you've you know because I've gotten gigs where I had like almost no time to prepare um, if zero time to prepare, yeah. um, and, and sort of knowing how to have a conversation with your bass player yeah, and, and get on that page because, you know, if the bass player is killing and the drummer's not, it's not going to feel good mm -hmm. and, or vice versa, yeah. or even if they're both killing and they're just not speaking the same language, if yeah. they're not having, you know, or, you know, if one, somebody's got their own, if somebody comes to the table with their own agenda, it's probably not going to work, right? You know, right? Unless everybody in that band's happily playing, you know, follow the leader, right? 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 So, did you do you read? Did you teach yourself to read? No, uh, I know how to. Um, I know how to read a numbers chart, uh huh. And that's it. Yeah. And and a lot, but a lot of it's by ear. And since I'm I'm trained by ear, and I've taught myself everything that I've learned song wise from you know every tune that I know to you know, taking someone else's new song and going, okay, processing it, knowing it. I'm, I'm pretty fast at knowing and like learning a song and sort of having it in, in my bones. Right. And it's, it's so interesting that like, I mean, going back to when you were a little kid, your dad had these tapes and mm -hmm. he was just learning by ear. So like, that's kind of the model that was set up for you. And that's the model you mastered. Right. Um, and, and, and playing, you know, I've been fortunate to play with incredible players kind of, you know, from the beginning, everybody's right. been really, really good. And so when you get to play, you know, you learn valuable lessons very quickly, you, yeah. you know, and you have strong foundations to, to build your craft on. So all of that greatly helps. Yeah. You know? It's so interesting. Cause like you, I, you and I are probably about the same age. Um, and you know, I think my musical development was what uh, became typical for our generation. It's like you put the kid in lessons, you put the kid in high school band, the kid goes to college, you know, all this, all this stuff. And, and I feel like your uh, path and education and career trajectory uh, is, is more on the model of someone our parents' age 
you know, when, yeah. when music education wasn't so common or so codified. Exactly. I didn't play in high school band, but I played in a band in high school. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's, man, that's really cool. Which so, is funny. You know, I, I, I tried out for the jazz band. And, and I, and I killed it. There was, I'm telling you, like, you know, it's so there was me and there was one other drummer and we actually became friends and he was, you know, a great drummer and we sort of knew the tunes, but I couldn't read. And so I like, I had the, you know, the, the tape or whatever. And I was shedding it and I was like, cool, I knew this tune, you know, like take a train was one of them. And I can't remember what the other one was. And, you know, it was like sort of the audition for the jazz band's freshman year. And then I watched the first drummer go and I was thinking to myself, it's like, I got this in the bag, you know, whatever. So I go and I play and I, you know, it was good. It felt good. I, you know, it was, it, I was a freshman, so it definitely wasn't swinging, but you know, it was, it was, it was okay. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I thought I was going to get, you know, the chair and then I didn't cause the teacher was like, well, you can't read. So, and I was like, but that's why I'm joining band. Cause I want to learn how to read music. Right. And then he was like, Oh, you know, and then I didn't get it. And so then I was bitter, right. you know, play, you know, and I let this get in the way of any of that school ever happening. Cause that was like my first, you know, I was dismissed. Yeah. The first time that I tried to go to, to, to the formal thing and that pissed me off. And so like the next, by then I had like, you know, I was playing in bands. I was like every once in a while playing a blues gig with my brother, you know, making 50 bucks or something like that by like sophomore year. Or so, right. you know, by then I was putting my money in my pocket and I, you know, I remember like sophomore year, like the, the, the band director was like, Hey, if you want to come be in the jazz band, he's like, that spot's yours. It's there. And I've said something smart. I was like, how much does the gig pay? You know, whatever. <laughs> and you know, he laughed and I was like, no, yeah. thanks. I'm good. You yeah. know, I just sort of passed. And I just, he, maybe, maybe he realized he, he screwed up. Uh, but he, you know, and I, you know, there's a, definitely a bit of me just being a, you know, a punk at that time and thinking, you know, I was, you know, I was burned. So it just put a bad taste in my mouth. Right. You know, and I, like, I don't, I don't blame you one bit because like, I, I can see how that would just turn you off to the entire idea of formalized music education because you, you went into it, you showed up and you were like, I want to learn more. And mm-hmm. in, instead of being like embraced for what you could do, you were rejected because of what you couldn't do. And, and you were like, well, fuck music education. I'm just going to go play music. <laughs> well, no, I definitely wasn't like, fuck education. I was just like, okay, I'm going to have to go about it a different way. Right. And fuck, so fuck I, school. <laughs> right. Once, once I figured out a formula and then I just, you know, trying to, uh, improve upon that you know, year after year. And then of yeah. course, you know, it's adolescence and, and teenage years. So like the genres of what I listen, we're listening to, were just like, you right. know, so that was my next like, question. Like in your, in your self-designed, uh, music education, were there, were there chapters to it? Did you like do a deep dive into one thing and then a deep dive into another thing or, or was it always just kind of everything all the time? Um, well, out of necessity after sort of like Zeppelin and, you know, playing as a kid in like little high school bands, like playing guns and roses. And, yeah. and I, I was definitely in like a weird band. Uh, it was called the purple edge. And we played like Lou Reed shit and like <laughs> the P- pink Floyd when Sid Barrett was in the band, and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But then like when I was started playing with my brother, it was very, it was St. Louis. So it was blues based and you had to know, uh, you know, a couple dozen shuffles and you know how to play different things. So it became like, okay, here's that world. So I was, I was doing that while at the same time sort of discovering 
true funk music like the meters and james brown yeah you know i obviously i knew about like sex machine and yada 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 but it was sort of like the deeper connection with that and you know um it was funny thinking about that recently i remember sitting and having the meters anthology and just going oh like this is what they mean like this is deep you know to me was like this and all that and then earlier this past year we you know played a gig with george porter jr man which was you know i'm going like whoa like fuck (laughs) you know i instantly was thinking you know i could close my eyes and like picture myself in that room i'm going what is this life like i'm I'm playing on stage with george right now like this you know that was never going to be a a real thing. Um, (laughs) so, you know, it it was incredible, but you know, it it was funny after rock and roll and then funk sort of stayed. And then it was more or less like as a drummer, cause I don't just listen to music as a drummer. I love, you know, melody and, and harmonics and harmony and, and just, you know, great arrangements and stuff like that. So I'm always listening to just all of the colors. I listen to a song that I like, 10 times in a row and focus on a different instrument each time. So then later I can hear the whole tune and how this little part plays a very big role in how everyone else's counterpart works. Right. We've talked about that before. I I can't remember who I was talking to, but we, we made this observation of like, you know, think of your favorite songs that have meant the most to you in in your lifetime like you don't always know exactly what the drum part is (laughs) you know oh no yeah like i mean you've listened to it how many hundreds of times how many thousands of times and if you had to sit down and play the drum part you'd be like ah i I don't know (laughs) which which is what happened when we started the payback you know Mm, yeah yeah because you think you think you know how to play popcorn (laughs) you don't right right you know yeah Um, and there's, you know, there's all these things that you discover along the way. And then, um, you know, then it started by the time I moved to, uh, St or back to Richmond from St. Louis, it was instantly started a band with my brother and some other guys. And, you know, we were doing original music. We were playing Zappa tunes. We were playing, um, Zeppelin tunes. We were playing like, just kind of like we were doing Pink Floyd tunes and, you know, but I, it was still an original band and we were doing skits and pa- parodies. And we had these things, the band was called gravy and we had like the gravy mailbag and we would, we would do fake, we would do fake commercials in between songs. Like, um, we made fun of Yamaha, the company, because they make everything, from, right. you know, like you, they make you a fucking Yamaha boat and then you can go buy a Yamaha drum set. So right. we were, we were sponsored by Yamaha bread. <laughs> So we, we had this fake commercial about Yamaha bread and it was, it was, it was, it was the closest thing to sort of like Saturday, Saturday night live meets a band, right. you know, where, where some of these tunes were cool, polished, poppy soul tunes. And then some of them were these zany expressions of, you know, what maybe Captain Beefheart might do or whatever, right, you know? Right. So I mean, it's it, almost like it, Spinal Tap. It's like an, a, a parody of a band that can actually play. Well, we, you know, we were playing these gigs and not making very much money. So we would do crazy things like auction off the drum solo and whipping post. <laughs> 
So people oh honestly God. would like, yeah, it, it was like the highest bidder. And then um, I remember one time he, uh, Nate was in this band. He brought a, a flat top grill and he cooked breakfast in the club, like on the on stage on the flat top grill while the, the person got to play the drum solo. So they would come back and be like standing next to the kid and we would play the whole tune and they would get to the drum solo and I would give them the sticks and they would just sit down and like fucking blast oh away. <laughs> You know, and then of course, like he would stop after however long he'd get up, and then I'd sit back down and be like, you know, back into the end of the tune. So it was just just weird shit like that, and you know, we would we would do the gravy mailbag where it was like fake letters from fans to the band, but of course, the band members would write these fake letters. Right. So Nate, who would be reading them, we'd have like a little jingle for it. And then like, he'd be playing this little funky Latin thing in the background, like real quiet. He'd be today's in gravy news. We get a letter from so-and-so and he'd read it, but he'd never know what the letters were going to say because we had all written them. So we're just, you know, it was great. It was, yeah. it, you know, and, and then there, so that I came back to this super creative, expressive, artsy band where like anything was possible. Yeah. And then from there it was just you know, different experiences and, and then, you know, you get sort of known for being a certain type of player or someone who could play a bunch of different styles. So more people call and there's more last minute gigs and, you know, and then that's just sort of that just sort of started progressing and progressing and progressing as the years went on. Right. So what about from like a technical physical, uh, point of view, um, what, you know, what technical or physical challenges have you come up against, um, in your career and as a self-taught person, um, how did you approach them? Um, man, that's a good question. Um, I guess they're all a little bit different. But I'd say the the most challenging ones are when you get a gig and you have very little time to prepare and you have a lot of songs to learn. Um, I'd say the first biggest one of that was um, I got the call to do the Carl Denson's Tiny Universe gig. Mm -hmm. And it was like I had seven days to learn 27 songs. Yeah to just go out on this run. Right. And, you know, and, and, and I know all those cats and, um, I thought, you know, I called, I called, I got the, I just got a call from the DJ Williams and texted me. He's like, Hey, you're going to get a call from Carl's manager. And I was like, okay. So he called and then I, I, you know, he offered me the gig, but I called DJ back. I was like, did you put my name in the hat? He's like, I kind of mentioned it. He's like, but Chris Stillwell ran with it. And I love Chris Stillwell, um, bass player from the great boy, all stars. Yeah. Yeah super funky guy and a sweetheart and you know we're, we're very good friends um so it was like there was a lot of pressure one not just because it was the gig and they needed somebody to come in you know john staten was their their drummer at that time and he was doing some pimps of joy time gigs so it's like oh my god i gotta come in and fill staten shoes yeah Whew, you know so there, <laughs> there there was that and then there was like the you know you know chris had I, I don't know that he stuck his neck out, but he was just like, We're, let's use Dusty. That'll be, that'll be good. So I yeah. wanted to come in and do a great job. You know, I wanted it to feel good. I didn't want to, I didn't want people to feel like they couldn't just do their normal vibe on stage because there was a new drummer. Right. So yeah, I pulled a lot of all nighters. I basically turned my kit into a fully padded, like I just laid towels on everything. And I was, you know, writing charts and, you know, of course it looked like, hieroglyphics, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, it, but 
it worked and there was, but there was some tunes that were like, <laughs> like, like several sections. Um, and so, uh, I, there was just a lot of cramming for that, but everybody was really cool and supportive and it felt great. And the tour went great. And, yeah. um, I worked with them for the better part of 2013. Wow. Cool. As far as when they were going out, you know? Right. So, I mean, it sounds like you, you really, uh, let your, your ear, guide your limbs like without you know without relying on uh notation or reading or you know a specific uh technical um you know philosophy or technique that most drummers learn from a book or from their teachers or whatever uh mm-hmm. you've you've always just been letting things go out your ears or go in your ears and and come out <laughs> your limbs a bit, yeah, but well, it's also too. I attribute a lot of drumming to dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like when I'm when I play, like there's like I kind of am dancing a little bit if I can. I'm on the stool and I'm kind of moving into it because I, you know, if my body swings into that pocket, yeah. you know, I'm going to automatically feel there more. And it's and, you know, it's like if I can't dance to it, I kind of don't expect anybody in the crowd to be able to dance to it. <laughs> and that's kind of the job of the drummer. Yeah. You know? So so what I would do is I'd be listening to these tunes, and it was like it was very much. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I had to sort of listen to was from this live show. And I guess that was a pretty excited show because things were, you know, <laughs> tempos were, tempos were on top. Yeah. A little hot. So I, so I had to like, you know, sort of dance a lot. I was like listening to it and jotting down notes of sort of how to remember different sections. And I would just sort of like kind of dance to the groove. And once I could feel the pocket and like, I would visualize in my head, like, how he was playing the groove, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then I would sit at the kit with that same body movement and I would just start working on that, you know, playing the parts along with the band. Yeah. And then once, once I felt like I was, you know, you know, I would just work on a tune and just keep playing it and playing along to it. And it's like, once I felt like I was a part of this live band playing and like things were working, then I was like, cool, I got it. Right. Next tune. That's such but a 20, cool concept. Like I've, I've talked with a couple of my students recently who are into sports, um, and we're, we're just working on like, you know, fluidity of motion, right? Like using up all the time and space, time is motion, motion is time. And a lot of them are really choppy. They're just like their, their wrists are stiff and their arms are, you know, um, so if they're into sports, I'm like, you know, think about kicking a soccer ball. It's a fluid motion. It's a full body motion. Right. And, and the, the point where your foot hits the ball is just like the end result of this full body motion. So think of your stroke the same way. Um, but what you're saying is, is like your, your drumming is an extension of like this, this dance feel, this feeling of dancing and yeah, the bounce, you know, it's as much as, it's as much as the head nod. Like if, if someone's there and they're, you know, they're bobbing their head to it, you know, right. It's like, that's sort of like the, the, the pendulum of, you know, you, you feel where that swing is. And if I want something to be lazier behind the beat, you know, right. Um, pendulum is a great word. That's a great image because it's, it's, it's self-perpetuating, right? Like you don't have to do it. It just does. Yeah. And, and then even in my style of playing, it's supposed to be a fluid motion that it, it should feel like one thing swaying to the next. And then that's a really easy way conceptually to leave space. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? That's a really cool concept, but it's sort of, you know, in a way, you know, like 
if you visualize like a leaf falling from a tree and then the way it works its way down, uh-huh. you know, and it's, it's sort of, it's doing a dance in its own way, you know, and the music does that. And right. it, I mean, essentially that's what it is. It's yeah. this dance and it's this conversation between everyone on stage. Right. Um, you let it move. You. Obviously you and the bass player are dancing together first, right. You know, right. Or you and whatever is the rooted, you know, rhythmic pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, your counterpart rather. And then, and you know, so it's like, if that feels good, then the rest is going to fall into place. But if it doesn't, if you guys are stepping on each other's toes, so to speak, you know, and the conception of that or the conceptually, uh, it's not going to feel good. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is a dance, you know, and it's for me, I I just, I like to serve best, whatever the situation is. And that means I want to be able to give space for the bass player to play the, baseline that he thinks best suits the song right you know what i mean and if that means that like oh okay i just need to do this to make this feel great Uh and but like it or say let's say like an idea happens i start playing my initial idea and then the bass player's line turns into something that's like okay i just need to curtail my my part a little bit to make this feel better i'm all about it yeah i'm not stuck to like it needs to feel like this, you know, yeah. because the bat, the battling, you're not going to get to a better, a good result, you know? And, right. then, and then, you know, that just trickles down to everybody. This just, just doesn't feel good. Right. right. And, and that's, and that's the role is to just make everything feel good. It's the glue between all of that, you know, and the yeah. bases as well. There's a great uh, guitarist and uh, singer songwriter in, in Atlanta named Tyler Neal. And I was talking with him about this, this same kind of concept. And he was like, man, I would rather fight someone for real than fight them musically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there's, there's nothing worse than just like being on stage and, and not being able to find a person or, um, yeah. you know, not feeling like you're being found, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's also too, it, you know, if it's not necessarily your fault, uh-huh. you, you still have to get on board. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it's, you know, you're, you're, you're essentially only as good as your weakest link. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you're that person, right? Not necessarily, but like, you know, not in a bad way, but it's, if everyone around you is like a killing player and very aware of what their job is, you know, how it's supposed to feel. Yeah. That's going to be your ultimate experience. You definitely like it's, it it can be uncomfortable if you find yourself being sort of the most aware of how it's supposed to feel or how it's supposed to go. Right. And if you're, if you're the strongest link, um, then, you know, refusing to, uh, you know, quote unquote, play down to someone else is probably not going to make anything feel good. Like just standing, well, standing I, on principle and, and saying like, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, it's like, you're, you're better off getting to that level and making that feel like, okay, you know, there's obviously really old music that this feels super loose, you know? And right. it's like, not, not the best technical playing, but it's badass because yeah. it's got that vibe. So it's like, okay, well, if this is where we're at, find yourself in that world, in right. that vibe, right. you know, right. start playing left-handed if you need to, whatever. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. 
Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. When we were uh, hanging out in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, <laughs> booming metropolis that it is, um, I think you mentioned that you had done some teching at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I used to be the uh, monitor engineer and the drum tech for Lamb of God, the heavy metal band. And that was for, of, that's right. That was for a few years, right? Yeah, it was for about it was like two thousand one. Maybe 2000. And then I think my last tour that I did was in like 06 or 07. Wow. So what do you, what do you take away from, from doing that kind of work? Like, I don't, I don't think we've ever talked to anyone who did uh, tech work. I've never been a tech. I've never had a tech. Um, so what'd you, what'd you take away from that? Well, everything really, um, everything on the other side of, uh, you know, of the equation of what we do for a living, you know, yeah. there's when we go to work and then there's everyone else who helps make that happen. Who's not on stage. They're going to work as well. Right. So there's, there's just as much work, if not more involved in getting that prepared. And I have firsthand experience of knowing, you know, the depths of that, you know, because it went from small little shitty bars to arenas, Yeah, you know, and I've, I've seen, I've seen production on those scales and I know how, how a production works in those scales. And, 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 um, so you, you see a lot of the moving parts, so I can walk in to a, a gig, you know, it's funny, even as the drummer, I just learned a lot of tricks about electronics and amps and, and voltage and frequencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I hear something feeding back, I can generally know a, a rough idea about where that is. So mm-hmm. I can say, Hey, the like 6.3, you know, is like, you know, yank that or please yank 250 because it's like, yeah. You know, there's certain there's certain sounds you can make with your microphone to feedback and you'll know if it's going to be too much. Right. So then luckily I have some of that experience that I can try to use sometimes. Um, and then um, it just, you know, when you, it's like I walk in and I sort of I, if, if a situation's let's say the not the best one, let's mm-hmm. just say it's a kind of a shitty situation. It's like, OK we all know we're dealing with this. I see what the sound guy's working with or, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's, it's easier to sort of get the lay of the land and, and help things run a little bit smoother. Right. Right. If I need, if I need, you know, who, who was, who was the drummer in lamb of God? I'm blanking. Chris Adler, Chris Adler, of course. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. The beard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think of that music and that drumming and that kind of drum gear, um, mm-hmm. It, it it's it's pretty far away from what I think about you and the kind of music you play and the way you play and the gear you play. Um, yeah. So from from like the drum gear perspective, what did you take away from uh, Tekken with with Chris? Um, well, it's funny because the first uh, I was working at a, a music store in, in Richmond. I was like the drum department manager. And they were, you know, they weren't a very big band yet. They were just sort of kind of, you know, getting going. They were an underground uh, thrash metal band uh, or extreme metal, whatever you want to call it. And did, um, did they come from Richmond? Did you say they? Yeah, they, yeah. They, they're all from Richmond. They they would all buy their stuff from the music store that I worked at, right. and uh, and I would try to give them as cheap of a discount as I could because I knew they were broke. And yeah, you know, we became friends. So it was honestly like three days before the first tour, and he was like, "Hey." 
do you want to come out on the road and be our front of house engineer and our drum tech? And I was like, um, hold on, let me go ask my manager. And I seriously like went in the back and I was like, Hey, the guys from land want me to go out for like six weeks. It's like, is, can I, can I do it? And like come back and have a job. And he was like, yeah, it's fine. So I was like, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, and I'd never done like a, a tour like that before, you know, it was a bus tour and all that. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, I remember, you know, very quickly going, okay, front in front of house and drum teching does not work. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, basically I could set up the drums. I could help them get there, you know? Uh, and then I was at front of house. So if something went down, I was like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get there. So it was very quickly. I was like, Hey, so the next tour, you should get a front of house guy. who's your tour manager. And I'll do monitors and drum tech. Right. And then that's what it was from there on out, um, which was much easier to do. Um, but so, you know, I was very familiar with the, how the entire stage was wired cause I was wiring it mm-hmm. with, uh, one of the other techs in the front of house guy. And, uh, when, uh, Chris's first tour, he had an entirely different setup. It was two kicks. He had some big Pearl drum set. So he had like, it was sort of like a 12, 13, 16, 18, or maybe it was like 13, 14, you know, it was like yeah. big, big, these big toms and, you know, symbols wherever you could fit them. And he was <laughs> um, like, right after that first run, I sort of, we were going to be out for a while. Like later I, I moved into his house. I lived downstairs in his basement. Wow. And uh, um, at that time he, I remember being at his, their rehearsal space and he was wanting to bring in different sounds, splash symbols, different symbols, but he didn't have like the room to do it. And I was like, why don't we do two racks, two floors? I was like, size them down. I was like, do you know, get like a 10, 12 and then a, a 16, 18. Mm-hmm. I think he, he kind of knew what sizes he wanted. I was like, but you can get smaller here. We can make them sound bigger. And I was like, and then you open up all this space. Um, and at that time it was like drum companies were just throwing gear at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we set up that first kit. Like I helped, we helped design, you know, I was with him when he was, you know, brainstorming his first thing. And then I remember he had all these bells and things that he wanted to bring in and he didn't have that. And I was like, I have this Gibraltar rack, you know, like the curved bar one. Yeah. That was my personal rack. I was like, I don't even use it anymore here. Let's set it up. Boom. We were clamping on all this shit, you know, it was great. And, you know, by the next tour, he was fully endorsed by Gibraltar and I had, we had anything and everything he wanted. Yeah. Chrome was fucking everywhere. Um, <laughs> And then, um, Meinl came and it was like, the, you know, he was getting all these symbols and he was trying to find it. And there, I remember there being this one crash that they couldn't, it was like a Zildjian as old at 18 and they just sent, they, they sent everything. They started making one of a kinds. They were taking finish off and hammering and sending. He was just like, Nope, Nope. Wow. Nope. And they find, I think they finally got to something that they love, but dude, I mean, I'm just like, boxes that weighed a hundred pounds were showing up every three days, wow. tons of symbols. So luckily he was cool enough and, you know, gave me a few of those. Cause I was, they were like great jazz symbols. They were super dry and yeah, sandblasted. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, yeah. it's like, you don't, it's like, you don't like this. Yeah. Like crazy, man. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, but you know, it, it was fun. I was on, I was on his path. I didn't really know a lot about heavy metal. I knew who, you know, some of the greats were obviously I checked out Metallica and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I knew, you know, Haku Slayer was and Megadeth, Iron Maiden, all that. Um, but, you know, he kind of opened my eyes to that kind of drumming. And, and his style is obviously, if anyone checks him out, he's very, uh, he's got his own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he brought a different sort of flavor into that world. And uh, it works great. All those guys are killer. And they're all, you know, I consider them all friends. And 
uh, we still keep in touch. But as far as like, you know, I never went down the heavy metal path. You know, right. I, I mean, I, I, pre- I appreciate it. And yeah. some of it's killer. Some of it I love. Like there's a band come from France called Gojira. And I think they're the shit. Yeah. And, and of course, like the, I think the first tour Mastodon was on it. So I, you know, I got to hang out with, um, Braun and, and those guys and Mastodon's the shit, but mm-hmm. Braun loves jazz music. You know, it was funny because I remember being on that first run and they're like, Oh yeah, you'll meet Braun. He likes jazz. You guys can hang out. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so it was cool. You Talk know, about it, the minor reject symbols, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was very, it, it was eye opening because I, I didn't know anything about that scene. Yeah. Um, but I would say it was more for me about the behind the scenes thing because I also, when I was living with Chris, he got them signed to Epic Records, you know, without a manager. He yeah. was on the phone with all these guys negotiating and, you know, I was getting firsthand accounts of just like the day to day progress of that. So I watched a sort of a major label record deal get pinned. And then like everything that comes after that, yeah. I got to watch the rise yeah, yeah. of them, you know, going from a, a pull, you know, pulling a trailer on a bus to having a box truck, to having a semi trailer, you know, yeah. to me des- designing uh, a graded riser that his drum set stayed strapped to and just huh. got forklift onto the truck. Like oh. I never, I didn't have to break it down. I put a sheet over the top. I took the snare and put it in a, in a box and yeah. it was like, you know, cool. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So, so taking that into what I do now, it's just, I have a better sense of like the, the lay of the land, what we're up against or how to, you know, sometimes solve some problems. Right. And I would imagine that it really got your, your tour chops together just in terms of learning how to live on the road, learning the rhythm of, you know, yep. days and weeks yeah. on, on tour. Um, how to deal- stay healthy. Yeah. God, that's a big thing. We, we talk about that a lot. How do you stay healthy on the road? I mean, it seems like you guys are out most weekends, um, you're not out yeah. for weeks and weeks at a time, but you're, you're pretty frequently. We do our weeks. Uh, we do a few of those longer runs. Um, uh, you know, Chris, uh, he, he's got a daughter who's, you know, uh, she just turned two mm-hmm. and you know, that was like the first year of like everything that was going on. And, you know, he wants to see his kid grow up and I get it. And yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to do more strategic things. And, um, you know, if we, if we, if the opportunity's there and it's, it, it's, it's like, okay, this is a great opportunity. We're going to go do it, but we're not, we don't need to tour just to tour, right? you know, right. which is nice. Um, yeah. So yeah, how do you how do you stay healthy? What's your what's your advice for not descending Man, uh, into physical oblivion on the road? <laughs> well, I mean, nobody in the band parties, you know, mm-hmm. so we, nobody drinks. And honestly, like generally before the gig, we all eat, we pop a thousand milligram vitamin C pill. Hmm. Um, Watch out. <laughs> it's great. Big it's like partiers. 40, it's like, yeah, no, shit, shit. it's like, you should see our cookie spread in the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we, you know, we'll take those in 45 minutes into the set and you're just like, woo, you get this, you know, the energy's there. Um, you know, it's just like anything you take, uh, you know, try to take a multivitamin. I think it, we keep a bottle of zinc in the, uh, in the glove box. And as soon as we get in the van, sort of like every morning, like everybody takes a zinc and, you know, right. we do what we can. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, sometimes you just get sick. You know, like Chris has kids, and Sloan, uh, Jonathan's uh, has a kid, and uh, you know, kids bring home the kids are filthy. You know, they, <laughs> they bring yeah. home the stuff from school, and you catch yep. it, and it's just you try to stay. Uh, but I think we're all, you know, we're pretty mindful of like just trying to eat. 
you know, you don't get me wrong. Like we love food and, you know, we don't shy away from something ridiculous that yeah. we maybe shouldn't eat, but we also try to like, you know, have oatmeal or something, you know, we try to eat healthy in the morning and, uh, you know, practice yeah. good nutrition and, and, and that kind of a thing. It's, it's funny. Like when people talk about staying healthy on the road, you know, they, they talk about using, you know, using that treadmill at the hotel or going for a walk or doing some yoga in your hotel room. And you're like, we just don't get shit faced every night. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that goes and a, lo- a long way, man. Yeah. I mean, the, the music, uh, only benefits from yeah. that. And then we're, and then we're all on the same page, which is really the, the incredible thing about that band. The Chris Jacobs band is that, um, we get along so well and we're all great friends and, right. um, and that, and that shows on stage cause we're having, it does. A, yeah. and, and, and we're all just, you know, musically mentally on the same page. Um, and it, it, it really without much effort, because like I said, we don't get to rehearse really. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, like, um, you know, we, we, we've done a, a lot of these cool events where different artists will come and play with us and we're sort of like their band. We've had to like learn their catalog and, um, and it's just sort of like we show up and everybody does their homework and it, and it works and it feels good. And yeah, I got the um, impression when I saw you guys, um, uh, not just from an aesthetic uh, standpoint, but just from a general standpoint, it seems like the four of you guys are, are really cut from the same cloth and, yeah. and there's not, it, I, I get the impression that there's not a lot of discussion that has to happen around how you're going to play or, you know, what, uh, personalities on the road or like you, you just no, all kind of let each other be and, and, uh, it works. I think we discussed uh, where we're going to have breakfast more right. than we've discussed <laughs> that for real. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's it. Todd, um, Todd did something great a few months back. It was um, he had, you know, because we're you know we get along so well, we can take a, a, a shitty six hour drive and we're going to have fun mm-hmm. at some you know, which is without fail, even if the weather's terrible. And he was, you know, we got on stage and he's like, oh yeah, we play, we play music together. We're in a band <laughs> together, you right. know, cause it feels like, it feels so good. Like we're just, you know, four guys out on an adventure and yeah. you get somewhere. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to play tunes tonight. This is great. Man. Um, that's so that's, that, that's a really good way of, of how to see what, what we have right now. And yeah. it's just beautiful, you know? That's great. And it, yeah. uh, it sounds like cool stuff is coming up in, in 2019, the new record. and oh, that's some, I love it. Some more touring. I hope you come to Atlanta. Yeah. Um, I wonder if – I know that run that we're doing at the end of the month with Green Sky is coming up. I know we're doing like Florida. and I mean we're coming up through that whole area. So I, I think we are stopping somewhere in – in Georgia, cool. I want to say it is Atlanta, but uh, I'll look on there and, and, and I'll shoot you a text or something. Like, good, and I, I insist that you bring the the Franken drum. Oh, that stays on the road. Yeah, it stays in the van. Um, this, this was so great. I got I got to tell this story because when I, I first met you, like you you used uh, my kit on the gig mm-hmm. we did together, and you put thank the, you for that. Oh, of course, uh, and you put this you put your snare drum on there, and I, I came back from getting coffee. And like the the stage lights were down, it was pretty dark, and I was looking at this snare drum, like what the fuck is that? It's like ten inches deep, and there's a thing around the middle, like I just I couldn't see. And I went backstage, and I was like, dude, what is that snare drum? You were like, that's two acrylites duct taped together. <laughs> yeah, I and I mean, went back it, and it, put a flashlight on, and I was like, sure enough, there was a you know a line of tape around the middle of it, and it was two acrylite shells, and it sounded yeah. amazing. It's you know. Uh, 
marijuana is a hell of a drug, you know? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it was funny. It started, that was the second one that I made. Uh, you know, it was really just kind of like a, I was chilling out, listening to records and it was, uh, uh, Levon Helm was playing drum. I don't know that it was a band record or one of his solo, but he was, it was, he was playing drums and it was, oh man, the snare was just like, oh my God, it was so deep and rich and badass. And, I know, you know, you can, there's different tricks to obviously achieving that with a smaller drum in a studio his or, snare or whatever. Sound, his snare sound is one of the great mysteries in music to me because like he doesn't use big, deep snares. He plays with light sticks. He plays that little traditional grip and, and it doesn't look, I mean, it, it he looks like he's playing jazz but the backbeat he gets on that snare is just like so true and it's, it's crazy yeah yeah uh, and i i think a bit of that is like um obviously tuning his heads were very worn in but i think there was almost like one of those lugs was almost wrinkling up like the head was almost wrinkled up yeah um but you know so Every, a lot of people know that, you know, you can just tricks of tuning where you get it almost loose. You can get that fat sound, but there's, everyone knows like you lose all the response from the head. Right. So I was trying to figure out a way to achieve a deeper sound while still being able to retain response. Uh So I could, you know, so ghost notes were still usable and then, but you know, that you could still have a big openness or you could just have a sock right down the middle and it was full and it, you know, this, you know, I also use, it's a 42 strand snare strainer on the bottom. Right. Um, and then, but the acrylites are just the shells are too loud and on the inside in between all the lugs is another piece of duct tape just along the shell just to tame down some of the metal because it was like, Holy shit. Um, <laughs> I was like, they'll never have to mic my snare ever if I didn't put this in there. Yeah, right. Um, but this, yeah, it's just a regular fiber skin. It's not the, um, the three, it's just a regular ambassador fiber skin, a regular hazy 42 strand snare and, uh, medium tension, I guess. I don't yeah. know. It, it's not real tight. It's not super loose. Yeah. It, bounces. it wasn't and, like, I, I, you know, looking at that drum, you expect it to be just like bottomed out and thunderous, but you've got it right in the middle. Um, so it, like you said, it has that great response, but that there's balls to it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. so cool. I'll, I'll and it's up. on, it, it's on the record. It switches between that. And then like that Ludwig kit that I, that I have on the road is like, a um, it's the white Marine Pearl to sixties, but it's, I call it the orphan kit. Cause each drum is from a different year. Oh yeah. But the snare drum happens to be a 63. So I was using between the deep snare and that snare, but the kit I was using and the snares, I was using drum tortillas on the tops of everything for mm-hmm. the entire record. Yeah. That's a man. That's such a cool sound. It's a great sound. Um, well, man, uh, it was, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks and for having me. Absolutely. And, and hope to see you in, in Atlanta or Richmond or somewhere yeah. else sometime yeah, soon. For sure, man. It's a pleasure, Zach. Thanks to Dusty for that talk. Be on the lookout for him on tour with the Chris Jacobs Band in 2019. And check out Diggin' with Dusty on Instagram. Please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. That's very helpful to us. We also have some episodes available on YouTube with more coming all the time. So check us out there. Also follow us on Instagram at Working Drummer Podcast. And don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have questions or comments. We always appreciate hearing from you. If you'd like to attend our live 200th episode at the Drum Pad at Drum Paradise in Nashville on January 10th, 
Go to drumpadnashville.com to register. We'd love to see you there. And once again, this is our last episode for this year. We're taking a couple weeks off, and we'll be back with our 200th on January 10th. Thanks for listening, and see you in 2019. Cheers. Cheers.